to Little Yo Pod, the All Things Yosemite podcast. I'm Laura Jackson, a longtime resident of Yosemite, nature enthusiast, and interpretive guide. And today I wanted to dig into some of the cultural history of Yosemite, specifically the story of what happened to the Yosemite Indians or the people of Awani, what we know today as Yosemite Valley. This is a tragic story, like so many of the time, and it often goes untold. So originally, I wanted to save this topic for when I was back in Yosemite, but with everything that has been happening in the past year, I kind of felt compelled to share this story uh, sooner than later. So it's also been requested of me many times, um, which is why I want to share it now. Uh, So I'm going to do my best to um, share this information while trying to maintain as much respect for the descendants of the Yosemite Indians as possible. Okay, so if you haven't gathered this yet, this is a very heavy subject. Talking about the history of the Native Americans in Yosemite is incredibly delicate. It's not my history, but I do feel that it is my responsibility to tell as much of the factual side of this story as I am able, because it's important that we acknowledge all sides of the origin of Yosemite as a national park. And the truth is, the establishment of California and Yosemite was devastating for the people who'd made it their home for thousands of years. And not only for them, but it was also devastating for the landscape and the wildlife, which suffered as a result of the drastic and rapid change brought by Western settlement. For a long time, I didn't realize just how much had changed in California from the 1850s to today. So just imagine a land with thousands of grizzly bears, hundreds of herds of roaming tule elk, and an immense fertile valley just covered in marshes and wetlands full of millions of migrating birds. So that was California before 1848 when gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill. Before that seminal moment, the Central Valley was grassy and marshy and brimming with abundant wildlife and native plant species. The mountains were home to grizzly bears that are long extinct in the region today, and herds of tule elk, once so widespread in the foothills and wetlands, were reduced to only a couple of dozen individuals by the mid-1900s, and it's believed that fewer than five remained in the state by the 1970s. By the time of the gold rush, two-thirds of the population of 300,000 Native Americans or estimated 300,000 Native Americans in California had already uh, died from disease or homicide at the hands of Spanish missionaries. So they were already in terrible shape. Uh, And the Spanish missionaries had invaded the coast of California in the 1700s. But some tribes had made their homes in the mountains and had largely avoided that fate. Although not untouched by the influence of the missionaries, disease was still rampant in all parts of California. Uh, They had not been moved onto the missions as forced laborers like the coastal Indians had stripped of their ways and converted to Catholicism. So just a quick note. I will be referring to the people of Yosemite as Yosemite Indians or Yosemites. I know the word Indian has a negative connotation for some people due to its association with the origin of the word, but I also know that it is the preferred nomenclature for some Native American people in the Yosemite area. That being said, it's different for everyone on an individual basis. And so I apologize ahead of time if I offend anyone, but please know that my intention is only to tell this story to the best of my ability with the information that I have been given. So when Western Europeans arrived after gold was discovered, a lot had already changed, especially in terms of the Native American communities. They had been reduced by quite a bit, but the influx of settlers from the West was the real turning point for the whole region. 
they moved beyond coastal lands, and these are the settlers, uh, where the missionaries had settled, and pushed into the foothills and mountains of California, as that were, that's where the gold was being found. The California gold rush brought upwards of 300,000 Western settlers over the span of two years, which meant new settlements and infrastructure and loss of land for many uh, original tribes. White settlers also wrought horrifying discrimination with regard to Native inhabitants, and this was carried over from just the history of the United States, as well as uh, the sentiment brought on by the Indian wars that were taking place in the Western United States. The newly organized or established state of California um, also started. So California was established not long after uh, the gold rush started. And they started making some really strange rules, sort of disguised to protect Indians, but with the actual intention of completely eradicating them. So in his second state of the address in 1851, California's first governor, Peter Burnett, stated, quote, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct must be expected. While we cannot anticipate this result, but with painful regret, the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power or wisdom of man to avert. End quote. My assumption here is that is he is hinting at an extermination of the Indians um, by the will of God, which would kind of play into that whole manifest destiny ideal of the time. Uh, to facilitate the task, Burnett set aside money from the government to arm local militias. The Yosemite Indians had escaped this cruel fate initially, but not for long. Until 1851, no white settler had stepped foot in Yosemite Valley, where a group of people, mostly Southern Sierra Miwok, but with many different tribal associations, had made their home for a very long time. Um, so nearby, a Western settlement had been established on the Fresno River near the present-day town of Corsgold, where a miner-turned-entrepreneur, James Savage, had opened a trading post for local miners. Unusual for the time, Savage was charismatic and well-liked by settlers and Indians alike. He made an effort to maintain good relations with local Miwoks and Yokuts, and he taught many of them how to mine and work his land, and he traded uh, goods with them for the gold that they collected. Now, he also had many Indian wives, perhaps as young as 12 years old, so I don't want you getting too romantic a vision of this man. Above all, he was a businessman, and maintaining good relations with the locals was good for his business. But I believe he probably did have a genuinely good relationship with the Indians, just based on what I have read. But all of that changed when a band of Indians attacked Savage's trading post one day and killed three of his men. That, in combination with a series of raids and conflicts between the local Indians and the miners, uh, prompted uh, California's then second governor, John McDougall, to call up and arm a 200-strong militia called the Mariposa Battalion. And then James Savage was elected as the commanding officer of this group. But the course of action was not immediately violent or punitive. The U.S. Army was initially brought in to convince tribes in the area around Corsgold and just like all the surrounding area to peacefully relocate to reservations set up in the lower foot hills. And actually, most of them did accept that offer. But there were a few so-called wilder bands of Indians that refused to cooperate. In the spring of 1851, word got out that a renegade group of Miwok had remained sequestered in a secret valley in the mountains. So Savage led his troops toward the valley from the south where he and his men would meet um, the famous Chief Tanaya. He refused to relocate his tribe to the lower foothills initially because the tribes that um, 
resided there were enemies of his people. But then Savage threatened him with excessive force. And then Tanaya kind of suddenly agreed to surrender. And he made a plan to meet up later with Savage to sign a treaty and to move his people to the reservation. So three days later, um, Chief Tanaya had not shown, nor had his people, and Savage decided to move his men uh, out and toward the valley um, to force the Yosemite Indians out and toward the reservation. And so along the way, the battalion was met with a, a group of Indians, which was mostly women and children, and they were marching up and out of the valley and fighting against a really heavy snowpack. And this is in March of uh, 1851. So Savage ordered the group to a camp further south to await instructions. But his suspicion was that this group being mostly women and children was a decoy and that there were still Yosemite Indians waiting to ambush him and his men. So the battalion pushed on and um, they headed further toward the valley, but they hadn't seen it yet. And so they reached the top of a hill and the whole thing just opened up before them. The the Yosemite Valley, what we know today, just this impossible Shangri-La. So just imagine that view that you get when you burst out of tunnel view. That was the first view that Mariposa Battalion had of Yosemite Valley. And it was so beautiful and unreal that it actually brought one of the members of the battalion to to tears. And he was the one who would actually document um, this whole process. And his name was Lafayette Bennell. So what they saw were these just massive cliffs, thousands of feet high, a misty waterfall pouring into a lush meadow and this giant granite dome in the distance that it appeared to have been sliced right down the middle. I'm sure it just didn't even seem real to them. That night when the men camped in what we know today as Bridalville Meadow, uh, Lafayette Bennell suggested the name Yosemite for the beautiful valley and everyone agreed. Although, unbeknownst to them, the valley already had a name. It was called Awani, which meant the gaping mouth. The word Yosemite uh, it was a common one heard at the time and has different interpretations, but one translation says that it is the word for grizzly bear, and it was the name given to Chief Tanaya's people, the Yosemites. When the battalion reached the valley proper, no one was there. Well, there was one person there, an Indian woman perhaps over 100 years old. She said she was too old to climb rocks, perhaps referring to the trek out of the valley or where the remaining Yosemite Indians had escaped to. Regardless, she refused to tell, tell Savage where her people had gone. So they had indeed uh, taken to the higher elevations and hid well away from the battalion. That did not set well with Savage. <laughs> As an act of retaliation and an effort to force the Indians to retreat by method of starvation, he ordered his men to of the battalion to burn the village to the ground, um, including all of their acorn caches, um, which was the Yosemite's main source of food. Um, probably years and years of collected food that just was destroyed. The Mariposa Battalion, um, they left the valley pretty soon after that incident. Um, the villages just smoldering and burning behind them. Savage was really agitated and very intent on revenge. So later that spring, he ordered a surprise attack on the Yosemite Indians. And they arrived in the valley in early May, just a couple months later. Um, and they captured five men. And three of those men were the sons of Chief Tanaya. So this is an important turning point in the battle between the Mariposa Battalion and the Yosemite Indians. When the prisoners tried to escape, uh, the men of the battalion just basically let them loosen their, their bonds and watch them flee. And I believe this is what they believed gave them just cause to use excessive force against the Indians. So they shot at them and they killed one of Chief Tanaya's sons and wounded another. Tanaya 
uh, was captured and forced to surrender shortly after the death of his son. And he was incredibly stricken by grief. He gave this really mournful and kind of scary speech upon his capture. And in this speech, he's pleading for his death. And with that, he promises that his spirit will haunt the land and that he and his people would bring trouble to the white settlers forever, basically. But the battalion did not kill him. Instead, they marched the chief and his people out of Yosemite to a common reservation on the Fresno River. And that was the end of the Yosemite Indian Wars. Um, the battalion was disbanded shortly after, kind of uh, kind of suddenly. After a short time, Tanaya actually was allowed to return to Yosemite for a funeral ceremony for his son, which just seems so odd because there was so much effort to get him out of there, but they just kind of let him go. Uh, but when he got to the valley, he escaped to the east side of the range, and that's where he joined a neighboring tribe of Mono Indians, and he never returned to the reservation again. In 1853, some Indians did return to Yosemite Valley from the east side, and they started rebuilding their village uh, with cedar bark lodges called Umachas and rebuilding their acorn granaries. But in a dispute with the Mono Indians over stolen horses or gambling debt, we don't know for sure why it happened. But a band of Mono Indians attacked the Yosemite Indians in the mountains, and many of them were killed. And that included the aging chief Tanaya, who was um, then stoned to death. And that was more or less the end of the Yosemite Indians. They disbanded uh, shortly after that and joined other tribes or took to the hills and caves around the valley. And that's where they had to go to hide from U.S. soldiers as Yosemite became a national park and started catering toward the tourist market that was there. There's been a lot of back and forth between the Park Service and the Indians of Yosemite, every new phase seeming to be contingent on what is going on with leadership in Washington, D.C. at the time and who is the Secretary of the Interior. So in the 1930s, um, after removing the Yosemite Indians and having them come back several times, the Park Service actually built a village near uh, an ancient settlement uh, in Yosemite Valley called Wahoga. And many of the local Indians settled there for a long time. Um, but then in the 1960s, the Park Service decided that anyone living in Wahoga and not working for the park had to relocate to areas outside of the park boundaries. So eventually, everyone living in Wahoga had to leave. And for reasons not entirely clear, the homes were again burned to the ground. <laughs> And this was in 1969, I believe. In 1977, the Southern Sierra Miwok Nation requested a new village be constructed near the Wahoga site. And then in 1980, the plan was finally approved. So today, Wahoga is slowly rebuilding with the hope that the descendants of the people of Yosemite and the surrounding area will have the chance to reconnect as a community and as the first people of Yosemite. And that's where we are today with that. It was, it, it kind of... I don't know. The story doesn't really have a very satisfactory ending. I mean, it's it's I think it's good that they're rebuilding this village. Um, but, you know, I just don't I don't believe that there are ever any amount of reparations that can be made for really that like horrible reality. If you want to know more about this story, I encourage you to visit the Yosemite Museum in Indian Village as that is where you will find the most comprehensive and extensive information on the subject. I have also included links to the Park Service website for the museum, as well as the official website for the Southern Sierra Miwok Nation. 
I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Little Yo Pod. If you like this podcast, then please subscribe so that you will get Little Yo Pod in your download feed automatically and never miss an episode. Also, if you have a moment, it helps me a lot if you can give this podcast a rating and a review or just tell your friends about us. That really helps us out as well. So I know I missed the listener review last week, but I wanted to make up for it this week by giving a shout out to one of Liliopod's earliest and most devoted supporters. So this week, I want to give thanks to my good friend, Daria. So Daria came to Yosemite one time on a short trip years ago and just fell in love with the place. And I think so many of us can relate to that. She was supposed to visit last year, but her plans were dashed by COVID as she has to travel overseas to get to the U.S. And so the plan now is for a 2021 Yosemite visit, which I'm really hoping happens for her. She was the first person to reach out to me um, over a year ago. Her support is one of the major reasons why I continued doing the podcast. So big thanks to her. And let's all cross our fingers for Daria's uh, return to reunite with Yosemite. And um, she is an amazing artist. She has her own wedding artwork and stationery business. And she also created this awesome logo for Lily Pod, which I will be turning into merchandise soon. So if you want to know more about her work, check her out on Instagram. She is at wedding.artwork. Check the show notes uh, for all the resources I used for today's episode, as well as ways to contact me via email, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I promise I will try to get better about checking those. I know sometimes messages go unread for a while, so I'm sorry about that. And um, if you want to help support the podcast more directly, please consider joining my Patreon community where I post bonus videos for members at least twice a month that they are mostly Yosemite focused, but sometimes they are just kind of silly. So check that out. If you're interested, a link for that will be in the show notes as well. Any support that you can give is greatly appreciated. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Little Yo Pod. I'm Laura Jackson. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful day.